I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Sergeant John Swede Pearsall. Pearsall served as a Marine on Wake Island. Exactly 81 years ago, on December 8, 1941, the Japanese attacked the island and forced the American defenders to surrender 15 days later. Pearsall was taken as a prisoner of war and spent three and a half years at a Japanese prison camp in China. My name, full name is, to the Marine Corps is John Edward Pearsall. I enlisted in October 31, 1939, after the war in Europe broke out, uh, had broken out previous to that date. I decided that we were going to get into war and might as well and enlist in the Marine Corps. At the time, I just graduated from high school and wasn't positive on what career I wanted to pursue, but felt that we would eventually get into war, so I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I went to boot camp in San Diego. From there, we were transferred to Pearl Harbor. Our battalion, because the situation with the Japanese was deteriorating, our battalion was split up with the outer defense of the Hawaiian Islands, comprising Johnson Island, Palmyra, Wake, and Midway. Our battalion was made up of 1,000 men, and 200 were sent to each one of the four islands, with 200 remaining back in Pearl Harbor. I came to Wake Island in August 1941 with the first detachment of Marines coming to the island, uh, comprised of 200 Marines. Wake Island, when we were first came, I thought was a, a beautiful island. We enjoyed the fishing. We had fantastic fishing, the swimming. But basically, we were a work battalion. Our job was to try to prepare the island's defenses, sandbagging in our positions, refueling B-17s coming through here, flying to the Orient. So we were basically a work battalion trying to prepare for a war that we knew was coming. The morning the Major Darrow was informed by communications at Pearl Harbor and Minbon. I was just prepared to eat my breakfast. I had buttered up a plate of pancakes and was in the mess hall. When the alarm went out, the alarm was consisted of a the whistle at from the power station right near us. As I was going out of the mess hall door, I heard the bugler calling us. The bugler wasn't familiar with call to arms. And as I was going out the mess hall door, I heard pay call blowing on the bugle. I dashed onto our tents 
We had five-man tents that we were living in at the time. My first duty was to issue out ammunition. I slept with five cases of 30-06 ammunition under my bunk. My first job was to issue out ammunition to the four other men and myself in the tent. Then we proceeded up to a formation called by Major Devereaux and were informed this is not a drill. This is a real thing. Pearl Harbor has been bombed. And then from by truck, we proceeded out to our various positions. My position being with a three-inch anti-aircraft that we had previously sandbagged in and so forth on Peel Island. I was in my position uh, manning the generators. My responsibility was supplying the power and operating the generators that supplied the power to our three-inch anti-aircraft. Yes, I saw the bombings take place, but because the bombers came in, at a low altitude of 1,800 feet coming in out of clouds, our three-inch anti-aircraft was not very effective on that initial bombing. We put some shells up, we put them up, but they were totally ineffective because of the low altitude the Japanese came in on. Because we were anti-aircraft, we were not involved with the five-inch shore batteries that would be the initial weapons that we repelled the landing with. Three o'clock in the morning of December 11th, I was going to the bathroom, but I knew because I was in communication with the command post because I had a command sort of a command post operating in generators. I knew that uh, ships had been sighted. I had gone out to the go to the bathroom and suddenly a, a shell went right over the out, outdoor latrine that we had equipped, uh, at our gun positions. That's let me know in a hurry that something was up. Devereaux probably made one of the best decisions any commander in the field has ever made. The Japanese started to shell us at three o'clock in the morning, still dark. He, because I was in communications with what was going on, the commanding officers, the lieutenants in charge of the five inch shore batteries that we had set up, three shore batteries of five inch guns on the different very three points of, of, of the islands. The lieutenants at those positions wanted to open fire immediately, but it was unfortunate. The five-inch guns were World War I shore batteries. The Japanese ships initially were completely out of range, running up and down with a cruiser with certainly heavier guns than we had, but out of range of our five-inch guns. Major Devereaux made the decision not to open fire until the complete convoy of ships that were coming ashore to land were within range of our five-inch guns. It's probably one of the best decisions any officer in the field had ever made. If that decision hadn't been made and he hadn't stopped those lieutenants from opening fire, I'm sure the Japanese would have got ashore on December 11th. What happened was the Japanese completely were kept continuing shelling the island out of range they felt that there, there was nothing moving on the island. Everybody, one of us, was stayed under cover. The Japanese moved their landing forces, their ships, within range of our five-inch guns. And at that point, Major Devereaux ordered the five-inch guns to open fire. I've since questioned some of his things that he has said and some of the things that he's done since the war. When he served in Congress, when he voted against veterans' bills and so forth, 
a question when I contacted him regarding a company safe that I buried just before we surrendered. Uh, I questioned some of those things, but as the island commander, I don't question his ability at all. Cunningham was certainly the was the senior officer present, but as far as the operations, Major Devereaux was in command of the defense battalion, which I was a member of. In the overall decisions on the island were made by Commander Cunningham, but the direct defense of the island was the responsibility of Major Devereaux. I was on Peel Island. Our three-inch anti-aircraft unit was completely wiped out as a uh, during one of the bombing raids as as a anti-aircraft unit. We our director had been blown up. Our chief NCO was killed. So we were totally ineffective as an anti-aircraft. So we became totally, uh, as all Marines are, infantry. So on December 23rd, when ships were sighted around midnight, I was placed down at the bridge between Wake Island and Peel Island to defend the bridge in case the Japanese would attempt to cross over to Peel Island. The Japanese were attempting to land out on the reef to the north of the island during the night, we could hear their voices. We could hear their talking and we could see lights out on the reefs, but they were unable because the reef is so far out from the island proper that they were unable to get ashore at that time. When daylight came, I looked over to Wake Island from Peel Island, looking to the south. And to my amazement, the American flag was down and a Japanese flag was on our water tower. So I knew that they had gotten ashore on Wake Island and that we were in for trouble. My commanding officer, Cap, uh, Battery Commander Captain Bodbold, came down to the position I was manning protecting the bridge and informed me that I was to take my squads and move over to the command post where Deborah was located and take up position as infantry defending and making the last stand uh, on the 23rd, defending Devereaux's command post. As I went around the island by truck going over to where the command post, I looked on the horizon and counted over 25 ships. I knew at the time that things were looking pretty bleak for us, few Marines on the island left to defend the island. After defending the positions that we were set up in for some hours, Japanese Bombers came in, strafing us and dropping bombs. They were the planes off the carriers that had ridden to bomb Pearl Harbor. We could look up in the sky and see at least 100 planes strafing us at various times. Our VMA-211, our Air Force, had been completely wiped out. We didn't have a, a flyable plane left. So we were at the mercy of these dive bombers with no defense against them except a few 50 caliber machine guns. We were running out of ammunition. So the only thing we had to fight with, as far as I was concerned, was a 1903 Springfield bolt action rifle. Devereaux finally made the decision that the situation had gotten deteriorated to such a point, and one of the problems was the communication. He was not able to communicate anymore because as soon as the Japanese came ashore, they cut our communication wires. All we had was sound power phones with wires stretched across the ground. He lost contact with the other islands and almost co complete contact except with the immediate troops surrounding his 
command post. The decision was made by Commander Cunningham because of the over 1,100 civilians that were on the island that the situation had deteriorated at such a point that they could not continue the sacrifice, those civilian contractors, workers, because it was just a hopeless situation. And had the allowed the battle to commit, continue, certainly a lot of us and, and, and a lot of the civilian contractors, workers would have been killed. And decision, as I understand it, was made by Commander Cunningham, uh, giving orders to Major Devereaux that the LN was to surrender. Immediately after we were given orders to surrender, also an order was to destroy our weapons. The only weapon I had left was a 1903 Springfield rifle. I took the bolt out of my Springfield rifle and very disgustingly threw it out in the woods. I smashed up my rifle and then proceeded up to the command post, which we were making defense of. And shortly, Japanese soldiers that were surrounding the area and Major Devereaux came out of the command post with a white flag and the Japanese that surrounded us ordered us to remove all our clothes and they marched us up to a road alongside the command post. They took wire that we served as our communication wire that was laying on the ground and proceeded to tie us hand and foot and lined up 50 of us alongside the road. Shortly, machine guns were set up behind us. A Japanese officer climbed on a mound alongside that road, withdrew his sword, and about that time it started to rain, a typical Wake Island rain squall. Machine guns set up behind us were then covered, and the Japanese officer got off the mound, and things kind of quieted down. As I look back, and now I'm back on Wake Island, I again walked that same road. It's just like the day when we were sitting there when we surrendered and brought back memories. And I thought about how cool, calm, and collected we were. Nobody screaming, 50 of us, realizing that an execution faced us. The rain stopped. The Japanese removed the tarps that they had covered their machine gun with. And the Japanese officer went up on the mound and again withdrew his sword. Suddenly over down, coming down the road from the south, another Japanese officer came on the scene. The two officers got into a real argument. What had we found had happened, we found out. The commander, Japanese admiral in command of the landing party had made the decision changing original orders that prisoners of war would be taken. The first officer that was about to give the command to, for us to be executed had orders that all no, take no prisoners. The new orders came out and we understand the reason for this was that there were 1,100 civilians, contractors people on the island and they didn't, they thought they were just military. We were untied. We were still naked. Along the way to the airport, we came across areas where other Marines had surrendered. So we were able, a few of us were able to pick up an item or two of clothing. Now I'm going back to December. And in December, it's a little different than the weather is at this time. The nights were very cool. So as we laid on that airport that first night, 
it was fairly cold. And then the next day, the sun came out and, and of course, got very hot. But in December, nights were very cold. We were on the airport for two days and two nights. And then we were all marched over to what was known as Camp 2, which was a civilian camp where the civilian workers stayed. And we were all placed in this, some of the still-standing barracks uh, in Camp 2. And we were kept in uh, the, those barracks until they evacuated us with, on the Nidamaru uh, on January uh, of 1942. Unfortunately, the Japanese wanted us to show them how our guns operated. So during the interim before we were evacuated, they would take details out, and I was on three-inch anti-aircraft, and they would force us to show them how to operate the guns. It was then we decided this is against the rules of war. So we did our best to sabotage. I was instructed, along with a detail, to set up a three-inch gun on Peel Island. While we were doing all this, one of us removed the firing pin. And as we went back to camp that night, we threw the firing pin out in the wind, in the woods, making the gun completely inoperable. We had some 50 caliber water-cooled machine guns, the Japanese not knowing. We didn't hook up the water-cooling mechanism and they requested us to fire the guns. The barrels without the water-cooled mechanism melted, making again making the guns useless for future use of the Japanese. So after this sabotage work we did, they quit forcing us to go out and show them how to operate our guns. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. 
Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Approximately January 12, 1942, the Needham showed up. It was a former luxury liner of the Japanese. We were hauled by lighter and tugboat out to the Needham The amazing part of the situation is the landing force Japanese troops that initially captured us and held us prisoner from, from the time we surrendered until January treated us fairly well. The Japanese do respect military. We had given them a terrific battle, and they did respect us for that reason. But when we went aboard the Nidamaru, we were placed under a whole new Japanese forces, the Japanese Navy. As we went aboard the ship, we run the gauntlet, so to speak. The Japanese were standing in line, marching us aboard, and just beat us unmercifully with clubs, and rifle butts and so forth, for no reason at all, but to just to show us, I guess, what our future life was going to be like as prisoners of war. As I proceeded down the hallway, the Japanese struck me from behind with his butt, knocked me down. One of the things you, we learned was never get knocked down, because once you get knocked down, the Japanese would then beat you unmercifully. But it was unfortunate I got knocked down and the Japanese uh, soldier began beating me with his rifle. I rolled away from him as best I could over to the opening in the hold of the ship that we were being held in and fell 14 feet down to the bottom of the hold. I was injured in my back and from the beatings and everything else, but it was very unusual and unfortunate for another Marine. The beating I'd taken coming aboard the Nidamaru was later to save my life when we were in Yokohama. We proceeded on the prison ship to Yokohama Harbor, which was our first stop. While we were anchored in the harbor, a Japanese officer came down into the hold along with a number of soldiers and immediately ordered some men out of the hold. I was the first person picked to follow the Japanese officer. Because of the beatings and having fallen 14 feet into the holder ship, I was hardly able to stand. A Japanese soldier beat me and tried to force me up the ladder up out of the holder ship, but I just couldn't make it. And I fell back down on the deck. But it was unfortunate for the man laying next to me. He was chosen. They took five prisoners out of the hold of that ship and brought them up on deck. It was later that we were to find out after the war, during the war times trials, that those five men were all beheaded by the Japanese. The Japanese lieutenant read a statement to the men before they were executed. You have killed many Japanese in your battle on Wake Island. For that, you are representing the, your military. And for this reason, you are now going to your place in heaven. They were executed and their bodies badly mutilated, but bayonets and pushed over the 
deck of the Nidaburu into the ocean. We were not, did not learn about this brutal execution until after the war and during the war trials, war crimes. And a Japanese who was witnessed the execution gave the whole complete story to the war crimes, war trial committee. Our next stop was Wusong, China, which was to be our home for the next three and a half years. The first winter in China was brutal. We came off of Wake Island with strictly summer uniforms, suddenly being placed in a winter climate. But fortunately us being near Shanghai, we got Red Cross help and our life became a little more bearable. We didn't have enough water to drink, let alone bathe with the first, but the Red Cross did a tremendous job in supplying us with soap and, and showers and so forth. So life became a little more bearable. But the Japanese found that they could put us to work and we moved 100,000 yards of dirt all by hand. And as the war years went on, we became very discouraged. But starvation, I found, was the toughest thing. The beatings you took every, almost daily, you took beatings from the Japanese, but you kind of became punch drunk, so to speak. You expected them and you kind of lived with them. But starvation, you don't live with. When you're hungry, you're hungry 24 hours a day. You go to sleep hungry, you wake up during the night hungry, and you're hungry all day. And starvation is one of the toughest things we found uh, to face. Uh, the work and labor that they made us do was tired and tough. But the food was totally inadequate, inadequate for uh, the work and, and to sustain life. Myself, I went from a 200-pound Marine, and when the war ended, I weighed somewhere around 85 pounds. So that we didn't, when the war finally came to end, there wasn't much left of us. That we couldn't sustain uh, life under the food we were getting much longer. I guess we were Americans. We knew that somehow, in some way, we would get back to good old USA and that we would win the war. Some of the people, some of the prisoners' morale got low, but most of us, but as the years progressed, I'll admit, our faith went downhill. But suddenly, B-29s showed up on the horizon in the spring of 1945, and our morale went up of all of us went up tremendously and we knew the war would, wouldn't last too much longer. And then on Easter Sunday, 1945, American landings were being taken place at Okinawa. The Japanese were smart. They placed us be our camp between two airports. Suddenly a treetop lever, P-51s came in and wiped out 121 Japanese planes at the two airports. It was the most tremendous boost to our morale to finally see American planes and knowing that the war was progressing in our favor finally. News was limited in our camp, but we had an idea things were turning around and certainly seeing those P-51 shooting down the Jap bombers that they tried to take off from the two airports was a tremendous boost to our morale. When we returned to Wake Island, we knew it would be an emotional occasion, but I was determined that I was going to come back to experience certainly these emotions, but to see a part of an island that certainly was a very much a part of our 
lives as a young man, as a member of the Marine First Defense Battalion, and to relive some of the experiences that we lived at the outbreak of the war and the duty we had here before the war on the island. We loved the little island. The weather was perfect. The fishing was good. The duty was tough. We had a lot of work to do preparing for war, but we enjoyed the island before the war started. So I wanted to come back to again relive some of those experiences, certainly that are very emotional, but also to see our little island out in the Pacific. I just wanted, again, to relive those experiences and to walk the shores where we of our little island and, and to, again, visit the gun positions, again, certainly to try and again recover the company safe that I buried <laughs> before we surrendered. The reason for us being here at this time was to help the civilian contractors, workers, to dedicate a monument to those civilians that died on the island. About approximately 100 feet from the Marine Corps Memorial that was placed back in 1954, and now the new memorial to the civilian contractors, workers. Approximately 100 feet from there was our command post, and just beyond that, a road that we were placed on as prisoners of war and almost executed by the Japanese. With the coming of the rain at that time and seeing the TV people that were TVing the memorial dedication ceremony, covering their cameras with plastic, suddenly brought back memories that the rain came when we were lined up along the road just 100 feet away. And I looked over at that same spot at some 40 years ago after the surrender in 19, December 23rd, 1941. And memories came back, just unbelievable memories of that day when it started to rain and the rain actually saved our lives and gave us time till orders were changed. It was a just an unbelievable experience to have the rain, the cameras being covered, just brought back memories and just upset my whole system just to just to experience this almost somewhat the same identical conditions that happened to us on December 23rd, 1941. It brought back just memories that you can't believe. Suddenly tears came to my eyes. Suddenly it was very emotional. And I thought back of those days and that day in 1941, December 23rd, when the Japanese were preparing to execute us in the rains came in time to save our lives. None of us are, are getting any younger. Coming back at this point at our age and our physical condition was probably the last chance we'll ever see again to revisit and, and go over the memories that Wake Island holds for us. And certainly it's very emotional, it's true. 
an experience I had today at the at the memorial was very emotional to me. I'm sure other people that weren't here and didn't experience the things we did would realize what the ceremony out there meant to those of us that survived the prison camp and, and the battle of Wake. But there's something I wanted to do, I was bound and determined to do, to for a last time come back and visit our little island that meant so much in our lives as a young man. We were walking on the beach of Peel Island, and this wake is comprised of three islands. And the Peel Island was the island that my battery that I served under was stationed. And yesterday, we walked the beaches where our battery was located, not only our battery, but the five-inch shore batteries were located. I was in three-inch anti-aircraft, and that was the area where our first batteries were located and where we first started our defense of the island. And it was important to walk those beaches again and re relive what it was like for us back after Pearl Harbor and when bombers start coming in and to relive the, the fear and certainly the overcoming of that fear so that we could again act and do the job we were set out to do as Marines and try to defend the island in the best way we knew how. I was walking with Roger Bamford Roger Bamford was just a young kid, you might say. When the war broke out, he lied about his age and 16 years old. And he served in the same battery that I did. And Roger and I, of course, uh, went through the war in the prison camp together. So we, re again, were reliving the, the, what it was like some 40 years ago when we served in the three-inch anti-aircraft battery that we were attached to, and to walk on those same spots that we were on when, when, when the war broke out. When we get together, we have reunions and so forth. A lot of times we talk basically about the humorous things that happened in prison camp life. We very seldom talk about the things, the beatings, the worst conditions. And certainly as Americans, we're kind of different, say, than we were lived with British and Thailands and so forth. We're kind of a happy-go-lucky lot. We pulled many tricks on the Japanese and did many things that were humorous. And when we get together for reunions, it's amazing. We remember the humorous side of being a prisoner of war, and there was some humor to it. They weren't all times bad. And we did many tricks, and we talk about the tricks we used to pull on the Japanese, how we used to steal food and different things to subsist with. And, uh, you know, that's the reason for getting together. We don't see each other very often. We, we're from all over the United States, and we seldom see each other. And we have our reunions, and it's the time to relive a different life than you normally live that we live now and certainly uh, our life in the battle on Wake Island and life in prison camp it was a totally different existence 
and the experiences we had then. And it's, it's just uh, a joy to get together and, and to rehash some of the, some of our old experiences. Wake Island played an important part of history. I know my father was a doctor, went to war, World War I, and operated a field hospital in France. As a young man growing up, I didn't ever hear my father talk about it. Today, in our experiences here, in the press that's covering our experiences that we had on Wake Island as prisoners were, is all being documented for my children and my grandchildren and for history. My father had tremendous experiences that he could have talked to me about, but I have no documentation. As a doctor in a field hospital in France in World War I, I would love to hear about my father's experiences. But today, we had sons and daughters and people who were on Wake Island are here today and reliving some of the experiences their fathers went through when they served on Wake Island. I think this is tremendous for these people, the sons and daughters and relatives to come back and relive some of the experiences we had here on Wake Island and and to talk about it. And certainly the people doing the documentation are doing a fantastic job for history because we're not young anymore. Our memories are getting bad. And if we don't do it now, It'll never be preserved for history, and certainly the part that Wake Island played at the beginning of the war was important in history and should be documented. That was Sergeant Swede Pearsall. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. We spend a lot of time talking about healthcare and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it. 